It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Today I have a special guest. Longtime Philly. Philly native. Actually from Jersey, but Philly native, I like to say. One of the best. Doug Glanville, right here on Pine Tar for Breakfast. In the air to left field. Going back on it. It is gone! Kevin Francis sends everybody home. Ball there. Coming down. down. What up? And welcome to another episode of Pine Tar for Breakfast. I'm your host, Kevin Franzen, at Kevin Franzen on Twitter. And I just got to do it right now. I want to bring on a guest who needs no introduction to the Philadelphia area, nine-year Major League vet, former Philadelphia Philly, graduate of the University of Penn, longtime broadcaster, host of, let's see, the Starkville, uh, with co-host, Hall of Famer, Philadelphia native Jason Stark, professor, a ridiculous writer, and flat out one of the best people I know and will talk to on this podcast, Doug Glanville. Doug, how are you? Yeah, Kev, man. Really doing well. It's good to talk to you. Man, that re- that's a good resume. I mean, I, I could have done the GPA, you know, the, the you know, what is it? Yesterday, I think, was your uh, debut uh, 20 yes. years ago. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, that makes you old. Let's say, well, 20, well, let's say 25 30. years ago, yeah. Yeah. 1996. 96, yeah. Uh, and then today, today with Man. the draft, took me back to the 91 draft. So, yeah, it's almost 30 years there. I don't want, I don't want to tell you where I was in 96, <laughs> but that's okay. That's all right. Um, you know, I, I, I find it fascinating because you get a platform and your platform has been baseball. Your platform has been uh, being a college professor, uh, or still is, uh, being in, in, in sports media as a, a baseball broadcaster, uh, you have consistently and always been comfortable talking about the uncomfortable. Um, and that's some race issues. And when I say some, it's a lot. And it, it's been uh, magnified in, in recent days and uh, for all good reasons. Um, and so I wanted to bring you on and, and, you know, talk to you about like where we are right now, uh, as a society in the baseball world and just let you, you know, talk about things that, that need to be said. Yeah, man. I mean, well, I'll tell you, we, we're unpacking right now, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, so when do you make that road trip, you know, you go to spring training and you have, you know, all these things that you own that you've figured out how to you know, live with efficiently over the all the years in your career, and and you're you're unloading, in my case now the minivan, but you know the pickup truck, the you know the luxury sports car, and we're we're unpacking a, a lot of things right now because one of which is our history. Um, we've you know, recognized that it will all come from somewhere, but how things have been reinforced along the lines of race uh, takes you back in time. And just to understand and reconcile why 
what we're dealing with today is directly related to that history is, is a huge first step when we actually can call it what it is. And, and that's been a challenge because whether it's been spun a certain way or whether you haven't wanted to face it or the denial or, you know, or this would go away if you, if you stop bringing it up, there's so many ways that it's been dismissed. And, and we have a world now that is so visual, right? So, so quick with the speed of information that it has to kind of be in people's face to say, Oh, okay. You know, and, and be in that in a consistent way to say, okay, there's some authenticity here. This is real stuff. And now it's just a matter of taking that and connecting the dots. Uh, I always call it in my class, I call it the language of dismissal. Mm -hmm. You know, there are words to say, oh, you know, it's an isolated incident or, oh, it's just one bad apple or, you know, it's a way to dismiss that there's a pattern in practice. There's a connection or a way to dismiss your experience when you actually have a body of work to reference over time. Uh, I wrote a New York Times column talking about, uh, you know, if you're a person of color, or a black man in my case, going through the world, you you mark these points along yeah. in, in, over time, and you kind of and you start to see patterns. You start to see if I'm in this scenario, if I'm jogging over here, if I'm, and you know, and I think when we see that as not, oh, I'm pointing fingers or I'm calling you this name or um, when we see it as something to just be human and empathize with someone else and and actually look at it as we're in the united states of america we need to do better uh and not take it so personally all the time as we as we can in our camps then you, you can make progress so we're we're facing a lot uh all at once because we're in a health crisis on top of it we've been isolated and we're trying to connect and we still recognize that you know the, the sort of elephant in the room that we've never really truly confronted is is race in America. Yeah, and it's hard to say, and I don't want to put it on the same level at all. But you know, during this time of pandemic, and and you know, um, us being able to see and and voice um, the problems that we're having with racism, uh, one can't drown out the other because it, they are things they are areas in our world in our life that are going to you know continue on but they're only going to continue on in a positive way if we continue to talk about it and be vigilant towards things and and how do you do you think that we as a society and especially with, with when it comes to race and social inequalities and 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 racial racial inequalities and uh police brutality all that type stuff how do we continue to speak about it and I'm not saying it's a negative or positive thing, but it's life. It needs to be talked about like it's life because it is life. Yeah. Well, you know, Kevin, there's, there's kind of a lot of reasons why um, it's been landmines and, and avoided for so long for part of it is, you know, power wants to keep power. Uh, we talk about our class that power uh, loves to legitimize itself, right? It, and it tells stories and narratives to say, this is why we're in power and this is justified. It tends to concentrate. Uh, when it concentrates, it, it sort of gives to the to the same groups and the same uh, power structure and it just sort of goes over and, and just reinforces itself. And, and I think when you have these type of dynamics with power uh, and we see power as a third rule as uh, infinite, Right. If you if you mm -hmm. kind of see power as infinite, then you're you're more likely to share. You're more likely to see it as we're in this together. When you see it as finite, a zero sum game, then you see that you're taking from me. And and until we kind of accept the sort of argument or position that equity 
opportunity, equal opportunity is empowering to all of us and actually makes us stronger as a nation, then we're always going to see like, well, no, you're taking from me. If I give you equality, you're mm -hmm. I'm losing something. And when people have had an advantage for so long, when a 90-yard head start on a 100-yard dash and, and want that advantage, then it's very difficult to to uh to sort of change and and so now you know front and center uh one of the things we did in our class for example is one of the assignments was to take uh, the world i call it the world without sports and write about what we're facing and it's interesting you mentioned this about these overlapping crises well for a period obviously we were locked in on the health crisis mm -hmm. focus, right? And, and you saw athletes speak on things and that was acceptable. And that was the first real major crack in stick to sports world and rejecting that, right? Because, because it was like, well, it's okay. You can talk about this. You're, you know, we're all trying to survive here. That was a moment to think, well, and I think once players got more comfortable and, and you realize that somewhat the pandemic kind of overshadowed in a certain way, that there's still things going on and racism and all these things that are happening. And then when we started to open up as a country and, you know, people are starting to get a little bit more comfortable going out and not as socially distant, then it was like, whoa, wait a minute now. Hmm. This is they're here. And the data started coming in on the inequities of who's dying from COVID-19 and so on. Then, yeah, they, then the conversation started to kick in, especially when the videos started to surface. So, you know, we, uh, we've, we've tended to treat uh, these discussions on inequity as like, eh, you know, okay, we can solve it easily, right? Okay, oh yeah, we're going to hire this person. We're going to, and I call it color by numbers. Oh, we're we're going to start this board, and it's going to be this for this corporation, and we're we're going to have like, you know, one one black guy here, and he's going to have no power and can't speak in the room, and and then we'll say we're doing something, right? And and now it's people are expecting change and action. They're expecting more than the platitudes and the statements and their. They're looking to see like actually concrete change, and uh, and when you talk about the silence of it, uh, I I respect that people have different strengths and different ways to deal with things. You know, you might want to think a little bit, step back. You may not say something right away, or I 100% get that. But we now uh, seem to be facing that silence is a position, especially when it's intentional, right? It's an intentional position, and it's always going to benefit people who have power because when you're in power and you don't want to shake the tree, so to speak, then you just retain power. And so it's easy to kind of go silent, even if you're not perpetuating in a direct way, it, it just lays back to allow systems to operate as they are. And as, as now we're discussing much more readily, the systems have always been tilted against certain people, always. And, uh, and they've been built that way and reinforced. And, and so if you try to take where we are today and just overlay a neutral policy over years of advantage, you don't change anything. And, and I know that the tough thing today is when, you know, someone says, look, you know, I, I, you know, I would, I didn't traffic in slavery. I didn't do these things. If someone said, I, I understand that. But what, what happens is it's making the recognition and connecting the dots that advantage still came from that generations later. And that you may not say, you may not say, okay, you deserve quote unquote blame, but you do have a poss an opportunity to dismantle it, knowing and educating yourself about how it actually still plays in modern day. And I think that's, you know, and, and just take something very straightforward, like the criminal justice system. All right, let's think about slavery, 13th amendment, in our country abolished slavery. But in that amendment, there was a comma. And the comma said, but we can take your freedom away 
for a crime committed, right? You can, so there, that, that, and they're born the criminal justice system, basically, right? And so the problem with that is, okay, we have a, you know, we have a system of policing and all these things, is that the South was really rebuilt by men who were free, technically by law, but then arrested for whatever, jaywalking, you know, having, you know, just something basic and ridiculous. And then they filled up the worker, you know, class, the new workers class to rebuild the South. And the South was like, look, hey, you took all my free labor away. You need to do something for me. So that was a compromise. So from from jump, even when granting freedom as a country, we were compromising. We were compromising, saying, well, you know, it's not that bad under these circumstances. So just that still sort of exists. And, and so the comma effect, I call it today, is you know, okay, this, you know, this guy gets riddled with bullets and, but you know what, he, 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 you know, he did this bad thing in third grade, you know, but, and, and when the benefit of the doubt tends to skew towards advantage and privilege and, 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 and race. And, and so when you have, you know, it's sort of like why I feel like I'm in a world where I fit the description all the time and whether it's because I'm, there's actually a real crime going on and I actually have the, you know, the same outfit or whatever profile, or it's because it's in people's imagination because my color has been criminalized for so long that you become a threat automatically. And, and so sports to me has a great opportunity because part of the reason I teach this class is seeing the sports at its best. It's seeing sports, sports as part of the solution or a way to move forward because you know how it is, Kev. We, mm-hmm. you play with a set of rules, and they're fair. They're supposed to be fair for both teams. You play with play with a group of people from all over the world who come from different backgrounds, and you might have certain preconceived notions when you show up to spring training. But pretty soon you're saying, "No, I want that guy to have the ball in the ninth inning. I want that guy to pinch hit. I want the, this guy outworks everybody in the in the weight room." Then you start to say, "Well, wait a minute. It's it's beyond these colors and shades and mm-hmm. boxes and." and categories. Uh, and that's what team can give us today. I, I, you know, baseball may be non-essential, but the lessons of sport are essential right now. It just so happens the team is America. It's the team is our country. And if we embody that at its best, we, you know, that's, that's really going to make a difference. Uh, but we have a, a, a lot of work to do to first look backwards and then move forward. I think it's crazy that, you know, it's a negative power, you know, silence is a position, as you say, and um, the comma effect. I mean, you think, two very uh non i'm not, never going to say non-essential but silence in a comma you think of those like you 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 picture a comma and you're like oh, okay there's a comma but how powerful that really is and i mean it's how it's powerful a, a negative power right i mean it, it isn't uh good and you bring that up and it just that's the stuff that i i think uh we as society are ignorant we're 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 not educated on right we're not enough well think about trayvon martin or something someone like that right i mean you know and i mean even george floyd right Mm -hmm. there's okay well you know trayvon you know martin okay comma but he you know did these things in high school or okay but but we're, we're not what we're missing in that conversation a lot is jumping from well did he deserve to die are we are we and at the hands of judge, jury, and executioner held in one man, right? Like that's where that's where we have to kind of take a deep breath and say, wait a minute now, <laughs> you know. So you could say, oh, it's a bad dude. This was a bad dude, and and that's where the comma comes in because too often that comma skews negative when you're a person of color or black, right? It's it skews in like, oh well, you know, 
And, and that benefit of the doubt that you lose is the difference in that split second that someone has to make a decision, stand their ground, or an officer has to make a split second decision. Uh, and look, and bias is, is a human characteristic. Nobody's saying you need to eliminate something that's human. Uh, unfortunately, when you apply it to people, it doesn't go very well because you start reinforcing a lot of the images and the ways that things have been perpetuated negatively uh, often on certain people, right? Uh, whereas it works really well when you're saying, oh, how do I put the toner in my printer? Because that's something you once you've done it enough times, it's an automatic. You don't think about it. You don't think about opening up a jar of peanut butter because you don't have to go, oh, turn this at 13 degrees. No, because you've done it a million times and you just create shortcuts in your mind that what is supposed to happen when you take a certain action. That's bias too, because you're anticipating what the result is going to be. The problem with race is that when you see a person of color, you're black and you're walking the street and you anticipate, you are pulling in all these things that society has society reinforced in, in certain ways. And when it comes to health and safety, um, that, that fear can be weaponized. And, and so, um, so yes, I, I've had great privilege in my life when you look at, like you listed this resume and you listed some of the things and I, I did well in baseball and all these things and I had access to police as a young man because of volunteer officers being my coaches and, and my mom being a teacher. And, all, and so I had all this access. Um, so I recognize there's, there, there's sort of that, but then, you know, most people aren't necessarily in the, in the circumstance to, when it comes to policing, for example, who had access to all these officers growing up and see them beyond the sort of shield or the blueness or the uniform or, uh, or the, the, the policing and see them as teammates. Uh, if you don't have that kind of relationship and access and intimacy with a group of people, uh, we tend to lean on these biases even, even more heavily. Yeah. And last year you wrote a, uh, essay for the, the New York times or, uh, you know, something that happened b behind you at a Cubs mm -hmm. game. And there's something in there that, uh, you wrote about that I underlined and I, I, I really thought that was powerful. And you said symbols are the easy part of racism to endure. Racism is not just a symbol or a feeling. It's also a system. It is the institutional power that can crush neighborhoods, generations of children, stripping people of validation, self-worth, and opportunity. Those who have been subjected to this misuse of power are never certain that they will be okay. And it just, I, I don't know. There's so much that you write. It, it, it hits home, but it, I don't even, it, it can't say it hits home. It, it just slaps you in the face. Things that have been talked about over and over and over in our lives that we just continue to ignore. I just, I hope you know, the public doesn't go silent on this. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, Kev, I think the, um, you know, I, I've been kind of kicking around writing something like, you know, when baseball starts, you know, is racism over? You know, like I kind of, because I think, you know, I'm thinking through the many other times where we kind of go silent, right? Because we get the distractions, we get yep. these other things. And, oh we, oh, we don't want to bring that up because, you know, and it's a bad time. It's not the right place or, you know, whatever it may be. And, and that's, that's going to be a really interesting and curious transition once we are starting back with sports and people are just going to want to sit and because they're coming off of a pandemic to be like, hey, I just want to watch the game. I don't want to see a halftime show on, you know, whatever, Black History or, you know, so I, I'm, I'm very curious. I don't know how that's going to to play out. But I, and I think in the incident that you mentioned, you know, I was, I was just doing an in-game hit 
for NBC Sports, and I, like I always did, and I was in the dugout steps, top step, and the camera was from first base, so they were shooting over across the field to third base, so I didn't know what was behind me. And I do this hit, and then I, you know, that's it, like I normally do. Game's over, get in the car, you know, go, um, it's an Uber going back to the hotel and actually to the studio, and I look on my phone, I'm like, oh, and so this uh, fan in a Cubs jersey had made a symbol behind me. And now some people were debating, like, well, is it the circle game or is it the white supremacy sign? Because what happened with the guy who the mass killings in New Zealand, uh, that's the, the sign he flashed when he was leaving the courthouse. Uh, so um, so that was the, the big debate. And, and I, you know, I was like, I can't say what's in this guy's heart, but it, it looked suspicious and it was strange. And and so but but I, and so that article I wrote was this idea that things are ambiguous. It can be taken in two ways, which is often a masterful and concerning strategy in the political landscape mm-hmm. because it allows you to deny it if you take it one way or accept it if you support it, right? You can say, oh, well, no, I didn't mean that. I meant this. And so I thought it overlaid racism very well in that, that you have it, – it's not that every single time you're sure of everything, that every intent of the person. You also have a, a body of work to go off of, and it raises a flag – and it raises something in your mind that may be threatening to you um, or your person, right? So, so, and and the fact is, the backlash from it with the double meaning still comes at you. Like you're not exempt from it. Uh, for example, if I'm, you know, and this happened to me like a few years ago, I was shoveling my driveway during the winter and it was freezing, the really cold day, and an officer from the next town came across the street. And I was just struggling away and just like, oh, la, 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 you know, and I looked at the car and I was like, I noticed it was from a different town than I lived in. And that's really weird if you're in the Northeast in particular, every yeah. town is its own, right? So uh, he came across the street and I just like kind of look at him fairly like, okay, what's up? And he's like, so you're trying to make some money shoveling people's driveway around here. So I was like, okay, this oh. is, we're off to a really bad start, right? So now when you unpack that whole thing, you, you learn more about okay they were they were looking for someone whose really only violation was like a snow shoveling dispute in another town and they had crossed town lines which was another huge question if you even can do that under the circumstances which generally you can't and it, it turned into a thing but the one of the the backlash i got i wrote an article two months later after i engaged the whole community i mean lawyers and public defenders i just wanted to learn i even you know talked to police met with the police department and I took a deep breath and learned. And then when I wrote the article, uh, one of the local columnists, pretty renowned in the area, said, basically concluded like, well, I could, he's probably overreacting because he wasn't tasered or shot in his driveway. So kind of what's the big deal? There's been worse. And that was a moment where I realized that, you know, we are categorizing racism or strong things as like, you know, cross burning on your lawn, people using the N word, you know, these dramatic, like, Oh yeah, that's obvious because you want a hundred percent clarity. But what eats away at you as a, as a black man isn't, isn't like necessarily these monster demonstrations of, of hate. It's, it's also these little micro chip away questioning you like, why couldn't this be my house? Why am I shoveling to make money? You know, like the, these little slights that, that, that sort of microaggressions that that eat at you. It's it's just that, uh, and that sort of builds a lot of happens over time. So, um, in those cases, that's what gets a little bit lost. And it and it takes sometimes it, it's because 
you're in those shoes that you identify these things. And that's what's a hard thing to communicate when you're not having that direct experience. And because then you get into that debate, like, well, you're overreacting. What do you mean? He didn't really mean it that way. He was just trying to do this. And the more people kind of justify it and kind of explain it away and da-da-da-da, then you, you feel more prone to internalize. And I was fortunate to grow up where I always believed to speak on it, to go do something about it, write something about it. I was you know, very fortunate to have my parents who gave me education, gave me opportunity to be able to chime in in a certain way. But at the same time, we also have to respect the many other ways people uh, can respond. You know, There's not one way to do it. I don't profess to think that's the way. You need, in fact, many different voices. Um, some people are marching on the streets. Some people are changing the laws. It's, it's all important. And in this type of serious historical context, everyone needs to be on deck. I'm right here with Doug Glanville. That's right, former Philly, an all-time great. What you do in, as far as teaching and, and, you know, you think about, like, take life without sports and write about it. Well, within sport, right, just within sport, doing the little things and perfecting the little things always make the big things happen, right? Well, it could do the negative as well. If you don't do the little things, big things aren't going to happen. And for you, when you bring up the micro in that, the little things when it comes to race is what builds up to get to the big things because we continue to ignore it. And, and I feel like the more you and we can, you know, draw attention and continue to talk about the littlest of things, it will, it won't erase racism, but it's the beginning, right? Yeah, Kev. Well, I mean, and that's a great point, a great analogy you just made. And I think the, I mean, think about hashtags, how that's been used, right? And, you know, not saying social media is the, the answer to everything, but, you know, what, what I think the dots that were connected with the media world we're in is that there could be a person of color, person who is black, doing something that is completely innocuous and end up in, a, in legal and physical peril. Uh, and, and that's why you see these hashtags, you know, in my case, it would have been shoveling, you know, hashtag, well, they say shoveling while black, you know, renting Airbnbs and, you know, the list goes on trying to get into your apartment, trying to ask for help when your car broke down and, and how you get into these threatening situations. Uh, and, and so that is important to make that, you know, connection that it, it isn't a big deal because small things, especially when you're bringing law enforcement into the equation, and you know they're, they have weapons, they have certain powers, and you're concerned and not sure about where bias falls in that officer's mind. Then yeah, you, anything could go off the rails. Uh, one one good example is uh, you know, reasonably long after the whole snow shoveling thing I mentioned, uh, my I was uh, working at ESPN and I was you know like I always did wearing a suit coming back and it's usually very late at night. And at the time you know we had three kids and my wife's home. And she's, uh, you know, there's someone at the door. So it's some guy who was like soliciting and, and kind of wore a suit, black guy, you know, and she was, she was concerned because he didn't accept very well the no, right? So it's like, all right. But then, but her calculus is different because she had to go, hmm, if I call the police here, um, I'm just going to kind of keep them on the line because I don't want them to dispatch anybody because what's going to happen is this guy may look enough like my husband that when he comes home from ESPN that night, all of a sudden he's going to be walking into a situation that he may end up being a suspect and if people are upset and scared and officers are reacting. So she had the way whether she calls the police for her own safety 
versus whether she's trying to protect me, right? So, yeah. right, and and so, and it's, it's it's a horrific feeling to think that you'd rather take your chances with someone who's belligerent than with with uh, an officer coming with a blind resume of who the description of this person is that matches your husband. Uh, so that I mean that just sort of brings into the context, and and saying that is not saying oh well you know trying to you know blanket all police and all the you know it's just the reality of how people feel about it and and based on experience and based on other things and and you know and and so from that snow shoveling exchange I um, I'm on the police council for the state of Connecticut and it's it's really one of the best working groups I've ever been part of and it's chiefs of police and it's community leaders and it's civilians and and we work on standards and trainings for officers. And one thing I would absolutely say is I recommend every state in the United States take a model where civilians are at the table and setting standards and training for policing. It's, it's, a, it's incredible. And we have a great working relationship. And I was a little nervous at first when I walked in that room the first day years ago because I was the guy who, you know, made a complaint, you know, didn't formally, but complained about the police and had this racially undertone incident in exchange. And here I am walking in with all these chiefs of police and, and they're like, you know, but they were great. They, they were, they embraced it. And uh, we've had, uh, we've made great strides. So, you know, I think that that, that sort of speaks to do something, you know, that it doesn't have to be big or grand or, but, you know, part of it is calling stuff out, not being silenced. And, and then, you know, I hope these corporations with all these fancy statements are actually looking in the mirror. Okay. They, they need to look in the mirror because it's not just, you know, denouncing it is important, but it's also looking internally and saying, wait a minute, what's our hiring practices? What's yeah. our, you know, I mean, you know, come on, like these companies have, you know, shouldn't be throwing, you know, stones from glass houses here. We're all in this. We all need to reflect for sure. But, um, but that is a, a, a big step. And, uh, and, and there's no doubt that it's going to take a lot of patience, but if but more people feel that they have the floor to speak and, and they can, and that it's for the, the betterment and the improvement of our society and making it fairer, the more you're going to get done. Well, how do we do that in our sport? How do, how do we get to a point where change and, you know, we could always say that MLB is doing right in, you know, developing programs and, and everything, but I, I feel like, if we were to go, you know, you were talking about the big picture, we could m go into a micro sense. And, well, that right here is Major League Baseball. And, I mean, I was looking at – I looked at a few articles because I wanted to get the numbers down because I was like oh, – I've always wondered when, like, the peak. And 81 was like 18.7% of Major League Baseball players uh, were black. And we're at 7.7, .7, I think, was last year at opening day. Right. I mean, that's drastic. That's drastic. But again, it, you know, people could say, well, it's, you know, they have so many avenues to, to go to different sports. You got, you know, black guys play football and, and, and basketball and, you know, not so much for baseball. It's like, well, why? And it, we, we address it, but, you know, how can we do more? Right. And, and there's also a mythology around, you know, if you have, okay, you have NFL 70% black, it doesn't mean that you're empowered right i mean there's and you know the nba has done a nice job to to kind of give voice to their constituents um and yeah and look yeah one day when we kind of get on whatever the other side and we have this equitable uh society then yeah maybe then 
you you wouldn't feel like representation is as critical uh, because and have that voice at the table because we're all kind of on the same page about certain things, right? But we're not there. No. We're not there, and representation matters whether it's in uh, GMs and and decision makers, power owners. Uh, th- that diversity makes a big difference, and and uh, and so baseball has always been very slow with that. And I think their their office of social responsibility that work with, with uh, Tyrone Brooks and Billy Bean. I think they, they have made a, a lot. I know I'm missing people on that name. I should be, but they're, they've made uh, some good programmatic strides and they're, they're working at it. They are. Uh, but we, we have so much uh, to do. I mean, you, you know, here's an example of baseball. 1987, Al Campanis makes a statement on Jackie Robinson day, 40 years anniversary that um, makes a statement about, Blacks not having the, and I want to get the right capabilities or capacity. I want to get that right about, I think it was capabilities, but uh, about managing in front office. Because that was Jackie Robinson's kind of final speech in Cincinnati that he wanted to see a black coach, right? Mm-hmm. A black manager, right? So um, now the interesting thing about Campanis, he got really buried for the racial component of what he said. But one subtle thing slipped through. He said something about paying your dues, going through sort of the system to become managers and the lack of interest or will or whatever of, of black uh, candidates to do that. And, and what's interesting is when after that, over time, the pipeline did start to fill up a little bit more, a lot more actually, with uh, manager of color in minor leagues and summer ball, winter ball, whatever. And, but it, when that pipeline kind of reached a saturation point or whatever that is, reached a certain point, uh, the hiring practices shifted. And I'm saying I'm not saying it was a direct handoff, but it just started to become the analytics revolution. And that became a movement where hirings became lateral. Instead of like, oh, go pay your dues, go through the minor leagues, and then you become a manager. It became, we're going to groom you. You'll be a special assistant to the GM. And then we'll kind of hire you after you're ready. And, and that started to, that sort of became a place where diversity was lost again. And and so looking at those kinds of systems are exactly how you tackle it. Because some people are, you know, oblivious. They're just like, hey, I'm just doing this, or I'm hiring my friend, or I'm, you know, they're not necessarily you know, plotting it out on a chessboard to deny people opportunity because of race. It's just that it's set up to continue to perpetuate advantages of who gets the opportunities. And, and I think, you know, one of the challenges around that is this sort of mythology of like, oh, well, we're giving you a chance, so you don't really deserve it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, that, that sort of feeling of like, oh, well, you know, we have the power, we're just granting you this. And if you're not committed behind it for, for feeling like this is a qualified candidate, then it can actually work against the, the progress you're trying to make because it becomes this tokenized system. And, and so that's an example of what we all need to do. You, you know, you think about economics. When you have a company they're always trying to break their models. They're doing all this stuff like, all right, if we do this, if we have sales don't work here, if our factory breaks down, they're always trying to break the economic model of how their company runs, always, to see what to do. They need to do that along race. They need to do that along diversity. They need to do that in ways of like making sure you have a, a, a safe and equitable environment. They need to look at that and objectively go through it with a fine-tooth comb. Because you'll find a lot. You'll find a lot. And, and part of it is listening to people. You said, like, people need to talk. But people need to be heard and, and just hear, like, the stories and not say, oh, well, that's offensive. Yes, I, you know, if you're trying to express racism, you, you want to be able to be have the bandwidth to do that. And it's not going to be, like you said, comfortable. Um, so 
I, I go back to sport because sport embodies team and embodies that opportunity to talk to people along those lines. I mean, one example for me personally with law enforcement is I mentioned my father was a psychiatrist mm -hmm. and one of his uh, practices, he worked with law enforcement and I learned early on the stress they were under as officers of the law. I, I understood that early on. And so when they were my coaches through my summer league team, I, I finally developed a, a friendship and family relationship with my teammates and the coaches. And so that set the tone for what was possible. So when I went through this experience with the police and snow shoveling, I had a very positive outlook about what was possible. And, and that sometimes is the difference maker of how you try to resolve things. And, and so when I you know, took this experience and collaborated with all these people, brought them to the table, I learned a lot, you know, and I certainly didn't do it alone, but I learned a lot because you, you become open to it. And if you're not, then you don't hear. And, and we have a big challenge of not hearing because we're always racing to the top of, you know, what's most retweeted, you know, what's getting the most attention. So as, you know, Tony Blair, a former leader of, uh, of England, Britain, he said, ah, we're, you know, we're always trying to generate heat instead of pursuing light. You know, we, we're trying to, follow the oh what's the hot story and what instead of like figuring out what's actually enlightening us to be better hmm. yeah, that's that's powerful too i mean you there's so much that you could take away from always going for the light and, and instead of trying you know for for the retweets for the likes which i've i'm not speaking on personal but i mean like i know i've been around plenty of guys in the game that have that's all they go for it's like oh this will get plenty and you're like wait what like who cares? Yeah. It, like that. What's the message that's behind it? Like if you think the message behind it, you're like okay. But if it's all about the likes and the retweets, it, it it's very similar to the the Colin Kaepernick, right? I mean, if if we were to draw lines and and say like this is the parallel to it, he takes a knee, and we're so as a society looking at what he's you know the knee is during the anthem and it's at the flag and we are not listening to the message. It's the message that's behind, you know, those actions and the actions of hitting, you know, send on that for, for a, a retweet, a like, or whatever it may be. The message behind it is lost. And I, I, I think that, that just, it, it's that more than anything is playing out in society just in general. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And it's uh, the speed of information is so quick. Uh, the value associated with, you know, followers or whatever attention is also, you know, hard to deny. I mean, the more followers you have, the more economic value you bring and the more your, your words like echo and bounce. And so when you're trying to get certain messages across, you know, you can easily get caught up in chasing that. And, and so, yeah, the, you know, when you talk about Kaepernick and protests and all that, you know, we also have to recognize that some of that was by design. Some of that's by design to undermine the message. You know, it's not just, you know, because, yeah, it's easy. You know, you're so, it becomes so binary. We're like, do you agree or do you just right? You know, it's just the, so you lose all this middle ground of like, well, I need to rethink. I need to learn. I need to, no, it's like yes or no, black or white, boom, boom, boom. And that does a disservice to the lessons and the time it takes to really change anything. Uh, but I also think that part of it, the way to drown out the message is that people don't want to hear and have suppressed for so long is to, to, 
sort of impeach the message and say, well, he's talking about this, but I'm, I'm going to make it about that and this and that and this and this and that. It's the anthem. It's the police. It's the military. It's the, the and okay, even if you want to bring those in, you still should try to address what he actually said and brought up, right? You know, yeah. at the very least, right? You, you know, we can get into that debate all day long, but the, the bottom line is like it still wasn't addressed, and the NFL, you know, sort of acknowledged that at a certain point now, and with um, recognize they should have listened more to a lot of these players. So it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's tactics. And there's a lot of ways uh, that, you know, I, I think they call it the seven D's from roots to power, right? Seven D's to, to find a way to undermine a message, um, you know, deflection and dividing. And, you know, there's all these things that happen. And, and it does seem like, Starting, you know, there's there's a shift. I don't know how. Hopefully, we stay on it, but just to pause, right, yeah. and to take in information that that has a lot of power. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, I grew up in San Jose, California. I go to high school there, college there, San Jose State. You know, the the main two alumnus I would always say is is Tommy Smith and John Carlos, right? And the statues are in the middle of the quad and uh, powerful. <laughs> you think? You know, when it comes to, to messages and it's like they weren't doing it, just the message wasn't heard enough still. Like that's the stuff we still talk about them and what they did, but it wasn't always just about the message. And, and, and that, that's that's stuff that resonates with me because I know there's a lot that, you know, we uh, at San Jose State had talked about in, you know, history classes and, uh, you know, core classes that we had there. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's It's always been in front of me. I just feel like. Uh, the ears and, and everything being open and, and being just hearing everything, taking it in, understanding that you don't like, I I'll be honest. I've read your essay that the enough four times I've, I've done it twice now without watching it. And I've done it twice while watching the video behind it. And you take away the images and the words resonate, right? They even more, but you put in the images and it becomes powerful. And it's like, how can we create images and words together for people to really understand that this is something that needs to happen? Well, yeah. And I, and I think part of what you were saying about taking that step yeah. of listening, it, it's okay to not know, you know, what the hundred percent direction we need to go. There's so many, layers to this and the humility to recognize we don't know exactly uh, what we need to do you know constructively right now but that we're still trying to at least get to the space where you're identifying things and you're talking about things and you're calling things out and you're you know and you mentioned with carlos and you know they paid a dear price mm -hmm. you know they paid a dear price and they you know it took a long time for them to get their name back after that protest, you know, they, it took a long time. And a lot of people are scared of that because if they do speak out and, and especially the cancel culture, right? Cancel, 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 cancel. And, you know, my problem with that is that you miss the lesson. You know, I'm not saying that people may do things that, you know, you could make an argument for cancellation, but the, the key is we have to, it's an opportunity to learn something. You know, because we're not we're not all like got it right. We don't have it all. You know, we we need to pay attention to every lesson we can get, 
about um, about what people's choices. It's like a biography, right? You, you don't you can read a good biography. Someone makes a, a bad choice in the middle of the movie in the book. You don't throw the book across the room and say I'm not reading it anymore. You you say all right, let me see how this played out. Let me find out if they made changes. Let me find out if they figured something different. And maybe they didn't, you know. But they they lived the life and um, and our you know we and our humanity still is what should bind us. It should bring us together and have the recognition that we we are fighting together for this you know something bigger we shouldn't we have a free country that shouldn't have um you know this extrajudicial jurisdictional um power to to kind of step on the neck and literally in this particular case knee on someone um even if there are you know committed a crime or even if they you know we're not judge jury and executioner that's not our system right and and so we um yeah, and and so no question that those next steps are uncertain. Um, but like you said, you know, when I wrote that that essay, it was I, I didn't know really what I was going to write. It was a, a moment of okay, I kind of have this assignment, and I'm not sure really where to go. And I remember how much people talked about George Floyd and the time that that officer was kneeling on him. And then I went on I went on Google, and I typed in eight minutes. I just looked up how, how, and I think I put, what takes eight minutes? That's all I told about. what takes eight minutes? And I saw all this stuff. And the thing that just hit me was it takes eight minutes and 20 seconds for the sun to go from the sun to the earth. That's, and, and that was, that was my essay, you know? So, um, so yeah, I mean that words, you know, whoever said sticks and stones may break my war- bones, but words may never hurt. That's the worst saying ever. Because words have a lot of power and they can cause a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And we have to be careful with those words. We have to be patient with these words. Uh, the section in that essay that says enough time, mm-hmm. and I go down the list, I had 30, 30 other ones, you know, enough time. And one was enough time to not send that hateful tweet. That was one of them. You know, just think and pause and consider for a second. Um, that might be the difference, um, and, and I think that's true for uh, the rest of our society. Just, you know, just pause it for a second. That person may not be who you think is, you know, and, and you know, these are just basic starting points that we, we have to at least fundamentally get back to. Yeah, the one part that I have, I mean, because I could tell you I, I could highlight the whole thing, but I know uh, from going to school, you got to, you can't just highlight the whole page, but you said enough. We had we have had enough time to change, but this time too many times, the light did not illuminate because we shielded our eyes from the reflection we did not want to see. I mean, you, you talk about words of power. That's it. <laughs> Is this yeah. truth? Yeah, we you know we we don't want to face it. I mean, we we you know we have our country um, and our exceptionalism and and how we were formed. And it is an incredible story of perseverance as, as our country was formed. And, and uh, you know, and the key words are more perfect union. They didn't say perfect union, they said more perfect. I mean, it was crafted brilliantly um, and because we're always striving to get there. And, and just think about our First Amendment, which is, you know, something we use in our class. Forty-five words is the First Amendment. And it starts off in the negative. You know, shall no government, you know, no government, no shall. It is, it's a negative statement. And it's a negative statement because we actually chose to believe that we are, it's embedded in us to be free. 
It's embedded in us to be free. And our job legally is to keep our government, our institutions from overstepping on that freedom. That is, that's amazing on how it was framed. And, and just because you're critical of our country and recognize its fault lines along race and call out its way it's not living up to the tenets does not mean you're not patriot doesn't mean you're not patriotic or uh, that you are against our country it's it's that you you are trying to push it to be better push it to live up to it for all people all men are created equal you know that that is important and that's why there there should be a lot of pride in, in bringing together around the black experience in, in a large sense because you think about that story, right? I mean, just think of a movie, right? 400 years of slavery, you know, come out of it, 13th Amendment, you know, incarceration, all these things that led to becoming these incredible contributors right, to society and still believing, still waving the flag, still saying, no, First Amendment, no, live up to this. That's a great American story. That's something we all should just say, hey, this is fascinating. And guess what? There's hundreds of those stories from all types of groups of people who have contributed to our nation. Mm. Hundreds, you know, and and so we can see common ground in that, not see it as like, you know, someone taking over something. Or, But look, history is his story. It was told in a certain way for the victors to, who had the spoils to say this is how it went down. And, and it didn't, you know, and there's so many other people that were part of it. and And that is part of what we need to do, you know, kind of retell some stories like i think we are right you've seen statues go down or what, mm-hmm. you know that's you know whatever there's um we're starting to look at it differently and and recognize that this this country was built on so many other people and so many other amazing indicators of strength and perseverance and and you know jackie robinson like that's an american story of course he's iconic and in, into to the black population because of what he symbolizes and, and did, but he's also quite an American story going against the grain and still figuring out how to be successful. You know, it's, it's really something that we should all consider part of who we are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and that's where sports, I think, plays a great role. And that's why we should not stick to sports. You know, well, we need to let sports have the room. And not like I understand that, okay, you're watching a game in third quarter, what, you know, are you going to interject with a 20-minute speech? I mean, I understand you know, what that is. But I, I think when it comes to athlete speaking, getting engaged, talking, engaged, you know, that that's important. That's important to continue the conversation because people listen. People listen and they watch. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And as I, I think so many more athletes are becoming almost, if not more popular than any politician, that platform is yours. But use it as, you know, be prepared because I, I feel like we as a society want that preparedness, right? We we're always looking for someone that just when they, when they talk, they know they have the contingency plans that we, you know, you were talking about earlier that we, we sometimes we don't look at, you know, trying to break the economic uh, barrier, what your, what your business plan is. Well, there's contingency plans there. There's a contingency plan for athletes who speak out and the ones that do that have these like, Okay, you're gonna come at me with this. I have this. I I don't know. I I get more and more fascinated because I feel like it, it's our generation that is being brought up like that, you know, with with a lot more knowledge, but a lot more you know, openness to speak out, and I and I love it. And and it has its ebbs and flows. I mean, you think of you know 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, Michael Jordan. We saw you know the Last Dance, mm-hmm. and you know he he was tactical about 
you know, not speaking on certain issues, not trying to divide. And, you know, and, and maybe in, in many ways he allowed that image to be, you know, in everybody's, you know, living room, right? Mm-hmm. Here's a black man, superstar player. And that, that served a certain way, uh, role and in, in sort of moving forward in a different way. But, you know, yeah, he's, he's taken a lot of heat, a lot of criticism for that. And, you know, there's... But there's different eras and different times. And I don't know what I would have done if I played in the 60s. You know, I don't know how this would have gone differently. But we are a product of our time. And and as you said, the information is out there. Sometimes it's muddled with all this noise. <laughs> and it's hard to get to. But we, we have, we're available to be able to unpack a lot of things that we need to unpack. And, you know, and, and really still keep in mind that we're trying to come together around how to move forward that's important and it takes everybody it takes everybody it's a, it's a team the ultimate team and and so yeah and you know and i've seen in you know, the many experiences i've had that i've actually written publicly about i've i've seen a lot of people from different backgrounds invest in it invest in the solution so although i had a situation that might have been racially inspired or motivated it's, it still took everybody to come to a, a place where we move forward on it. And that, you know, that's what it takes. And you see who's out there protesting. It's a lot of different kinds of people. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, we're, we're in it together. We're absolutely in it together. Yeah, it's powerful. I mean, well, Doug, I appreciate you coming on the, uh, the podcast today. And uh, it, it means a lot to me because I, I know I've talked to you plenty. And when I go to Wrigley and uh, throughout, and, and so I, I, I just I'm fascinated not only by your career but just everything that you do out outside of it and the writing and because uh, it's powerful and you know what you said the words are strong and they are meaningful and I, I'm just I'm glad I got the opportunity. Yeah, okay, I really appreciate you know, having these conversations and I hope hope it encourages people to just talk. You know, just you know we might say I say this to my class every time. You know, we might say something in a little bit of the wrong way might be taken badly but we're here to learn we're here to learn and we should never stop learning my mom's 83 and she's still reading and trying to you know figure out new things i mean we we need to just be open to that and it's okay to say you know i was wrong or i need to fix that or uh, you know yeah i I gotta (laughs) rethink that you know the more we start giving bandwidth for people to learn and grow and recognize that we all need to do that it it just makes it easier because uh and you know, that's that's what I do in my class. It's like the first day of class. I just say, hey, you know, learning space here. We got to and, and and now, you know, with a country, we have so much at stake. So uh, that left those lessons are going to be even more important. So hopefully we'll all do that and and keep at the heart of it the best of sport, you know, team, team first, um, no matter where you're coming from, playing by rules that are fair for everyone. And if we keep that at the heart of it, we, you know, we can make a lot of progress. No doubt. No doubt. Well, Doug, I appreciate it. And uh, until next time, thank you. All right, Kev. Next time, we'll catch up soon. All right. If you do give yourself a chance, go to Google, uh, type in Enough by Doug Glanville. Enjoy, because it really is powerful. Peace. Kevin Fritz! Without a hair!